Up next, the Cannabis Reporter Radio Show with Snowden Bishop. After this message. Now that doctors and patients have discovered the many benefits of hemp-derived CBD, Alpine Miracle's Nano Emulsion CBD formula is one of the most bioavailable on the market today. It's 100% THC-free, so you can order it online anywhere in the U.S. Order yours today at alpinemiracle.com. Scientists are just beginning to understand its essential role in maintaining optimal health. Get yours today. Use the code REPORTER and receive 10% off. Don't wait. Get it now at alpinemiracle.com. And now, it's time for the Cannabis Reporter Radio Show with Snowden Bishop. Listen in as Snowden interviews cannabis industry pioneers, marijuana experts, policymakers, medical practitioners, patients, and other amazing individuals with compelling stories to share. It all happens right now. Here's the Cannabis Reporter, Snowden Bishop. Hi, and welcome back to the Cannabis Reporter radio show. I'm your host, Snowden Bishop, and delighted you could join us today. At thecannabisreporter.com, we are very excited to announce that we'll be launching a special section that is devoted to our veterans. Our goal is to honor them by providing a platform that gives voice to the importance of making cannabis therapy available to all veterans who need it, because mainly too many of our veteran heroes are living in states that have yet to regulate cannabis, or PTSD hasn't been added to their medical marijuana programs as a qualifying condition. Often veterans suffering with post-traumatic stress and other wounds of war prescribed a cocktail of dangerous opiates and anxiety meds, which can often cause more harm than good. In states that do allow medical use of cannabis, veterans who disclose to their VA doctors are often subjected to restrictions limiting access to other medication and or treatment protocols. And if they're on active duty military and they test positive for THC, they risk their jobs or they're required to enter some kind of addiction counseling. Either way, we firmly believe that neither veterans nor active duty military personnel should have to sacrifice their dignity or their careers to get the medicine they need. They've sacrificed so much for our freedom, so now it's up to us to push for policy change that gives them the freedom to choose whatever medicine helps them find healing from post-traumatic stress or whatever ails them. And that is the topic of today's show, and I'm very excited to introduce you to our guest. Corey Rowe is an Army veteran who served with the 101st Airborne Division, 187th Infantry Regiment, in both Afghanistan and Iraq invasions. The Rakasans were the invading force for both Middle Eastern theater wars, where Corey and his unit were the tip of the spear twice. He lived in the Middle East for most of 2002 through 2004, but now currently lives in Los Angeles, where he is a filmmaker specializing in all forms of communication. And as an owner of Prism Pictures, he produces, shoots, edits, and performs in videos ranging from narratives, shorts, docs, and advertisements to YouTube series. His most recent film, and the reason I was very eager to bring him in today, was inspired by the death of a former battle buddy, Jesse Snyder. He had lost a struggle with PTSD in March of 2014, tragically, 
And so Corey, during a journey of 7,000 miles and more throughout the United States, tells the story of Jesse through the lens of himself and his friends, all fellow veterans from the Rakasans who share their emotional stories, which lead to Jesse's ultimate demise. So I am really very honored to have you on the show, Corey, and I just want to say thank you so much for joining. Thank you so much for having me on. And that's a, that was an emotional start for me. Uh, just to hear it again about Jesse, uh, you know, it was, it was, it was a rough journey and I appreciate you bringing me on to help share his story and the, and the story of veterans in America today. You know what, it's such an important message that we have to put out to not just policymakers, but to the people who elect them because cannabis is one of those things that is providing healing to so many people, not just the veterans, but to so many people and often you know, everyone, no matter who they are, they're stripped of dignity because of the stigma that's attached to it. If they live in a place where uh, it hasn't been regulated yet, and also if they're if they're visiting like a conventional doctor who just doesn't believe in it because he or she hasn't been educated on the topic quite yet. So for us, it's a matter of educating the public and making sure that everyone knows why this is so important and now particularly to the veterans. So your film was deeply moving for me. I'm a military brat and I know the plight of PTSD in family dynamics and, you know, how much um, pain it causes for everyone who's touched by it. And I know that you lost your friend, Jesse, and I'm so sorry for that loss, but tell me when you heard about this, what really inspired you to put together a 7,000 mile journey? I mean, that's a long way to drive to make a film. It is. Um, you know, originally for me, it was supposed to be a, tr a, a road to recovery. I've been through a lot in my own uh, troubles and tribulations with post-traumatic stress disorder. And, you know, in the last five years, I moved to California and I feel like for the first time I was able to get both the medicine and the treatment that I needed to be able to push my life back into a positive direction, which it was very much not in for uh, quite a few years due to my deployments into Afghanistan and Iraq and the people that got left behind. So when I started to kind of I guess for lack of a better term, get my act together, I realized a few things about my healing process that I had learned through it. And I wanted to, to help a couple of my buddies who were having similar problems. And so I initially wanted to just travel across the country and see it and camp in the national parks and just kind of do this road to recovery and just kind of take some time for me. Cause I feel like I finally earned it. Like it was okay. Um, and it, it eventually evolved into telling more stories than mine and telling more stories than Jesse's because a number of years ago after Jesse got arrested, which you can learn about in the film, he was arrested for, you know, possession of, of a bunch of firearms, which were turned out to be legal firearms and they were returned to him. But that wasn't after, you know, he lost his job and his home and subsequently lost his battle to the struggles of PTSD. So I had interviews with Jesse and his friends about that whole event and I had been sitting on these hard drives for years and I wanted to tell the story. I had always wanted to tell the story. And I think that's why I did the initial interviews in the beginning back in 2008. 
and and I've been sitting on these hard drives and I finally got to a point where I was emotionally capable, mentally capable. Uh, and then I became a little bit of financially capable to just spend a few weeks on the road, you know, not by any means living large, but, you know, camping with friends, staying on couches, a hotel once in a while when needed and, and having a video camera um, and the equipment to do that. So, you know, I put together a plan and I've been working on it for just just about a year. And I started making this plan and 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 slowly it kind of evolved. And and I told my my very new wife about it. Um, and she was supportive. And at the time she also wasn't pregnant and, uh, sure enough, I put the plan together and I set a start date. And then, you know, a few weeks before I was set to go, my wife told me that she was pregnant. Um, but I still had to commit and, and go with the trip. So it, it ended up taking me five weeks. I drove from Los Angeles, California, across the southern part of the United States, up into White River Junction, Vermont, uh, which was my most uh, northeast turnaround point, and then drove all the way back across the country again on a more northern route, and along the way interviewed 22 people about veteran PTSD and suicide. And it's called Mile Marker because along the way, I do vlogs to my cell phone at the mile markers of my trip. So at 700 miles and at 1500 miles and so on. And, and this is the story of veterans in America today. And it's, it starts off to seem like a bunch of random unique stories, but in the end they kind of collide into a very similar picture of what PTSD is and what life in America for veterans is like today. And at the end of it, you know, we like to, I wanted to present some of the issues, but at the same time, talk about some of the solutions that, that people are finding, myself included. And one of those is cannabis, um, especially coming through Denver on my trip back through the United States. I, I planned to be there for one day. I only had one interview lined up and I ended up spending a week there um, and interviewing a whole bunch of guys that had great stories about coming off of these terrible prescription medications that had these horrible debilitating side effects and then becoming a medical refugee and moving from their home state of Alabama or New York into uh, Colorado so that they had legal access to this medicine um, and then and then being able to get it, having it provided and having life changing positive effects for that. Um, and then, you know, really diving into that there, I, I learned that Colorado had such a surplus from their uh, economic program of people signing up for their medical marijuana prescriptions that they had a surplus in their budget. And the nice thing about Colorado is that they have to use that money for that purpose. And so they funded eight different studies. And one of them happened to be a $2 million grant for studying veterans with PTSD and the positive and or negative effects of whole plant cannabis. And the person leading that study is Dr. Sue Sicily, who I managed to swing through and grab right at the last minute on my return home, who's in who's in Phoenix, Arizona. And so it, it really paints a very complete picture from where the issues stem from, because we we definitely watch some footage of my unit, me specifically even, um, in Iraq in 2003, in the initial invasion. Um, we talk about the camouflage and weaponry that we were issued and how it was, you know, not ready for the mission that we were handed, mismatched camouflage, unarmored Humvees uh, during the onslaught of the IEDs in the very early stages of the war, uh, you know, and how those effects 
impacted people now 15 years later as today actually is the day before right today's march 20 march 22nd and tomorrow is the 15 year anniversary of the invasion of iraq and back in 2003 march 23rd is when i crossed the southern border uh from the kuwait into uh, the south southern iraq and through baghdad and up into the northern province um and so that's it's it's our story it's not my story it's my unit story and then it's also the story of veterans in the army as well as then we branch out to hear from people in other branches from the marines and of course i couldn't tell a story about ptsd without interviewing a vietnam veteran as well something that i thought was really interesting in the film was the fact that it, how fortuitous it was that you had the camera that was documenting what was happening in your unit on the ground during these invasions. And I think you mentioned that there was a journalist who had sort of handed over a camera. Tell me about that. That's correct. Um, Back in those days before social media kind of evolved to what it is today, this was back before Facebook, back before MySpace, uh, back before any of those kind of outlets. So there wasn't a good way for people to share information back and forth between the soldiers on the ground and, and the families back home. So that was still in the days of DV tape and actually even VHS tape. And uh, a, a news station out of Nashville came over and deployed with us because we were the initial invading force and we were stationed outside of Nashville in Fort Campbell, Kentucky, which is the home of the 101st. And their time over there ended after, you know, the short amount of time that it took for us to invade and kind of take over Iraq. And they went home, but they left us with the camera. And they gave my unit commander, Captain Robert Delaney, who was a captain at the time, uh, retired, obviously higher in in rank, um, and left him with this small DV camera, which he learned how to use there on the ground and kind of narrated and and did for the first time, you know, in that in that war vlogs before cell phones and before Instagram and before all of that. And he just kind of walked around with the camera and showed what was going on and and gave his own monologue of of the events. And within that footage, you see myself because I was his radio telephone operator. You see other people in the unit. We discuss things that happened, um, attacks on us as well as training. And, and, you know, there's some funny footage in there as well of us chasing around, you know, large, uh, gatherings of sheep and stuff like that. So it's okay. it, it gives you a very real perspective of what it was like on the ground in in Iraq in 2003, which I think is something that overall the American public isn't privy to. They you know they're shown 5 to 15 second um, short clips in in 60 second news pieces and and then the story moves on it's sensationalized and 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 it's forgotten about so this for us was very real as we lived in the middle east for upwards of two years um, and became part of these societies and had to watch from the sidelines as all the work that we did you know taking over the country and then beginning the, re- the rebuilding process was completely destroyed by the following forces and and the lack of of accountability within the war uh it was it was it was a difficult thing for all of us yeah i can only imagine but what was particularly compelling was the fact that it's hard for non-military civilians to really understand how ptsd manifests and why and i mean one of the scientists that you interviewed a doctor that you interviewed was saying you know there's no way to quantify it there's no way to 
to tell whether someone is going to develop PTSD, it, it, it's a very difficult thing to diagnose precisely. So when you're showing what is going on on the ground and then kind of seeing that, it puts a very emotional point of view on it because then when you go back and interview some of these guys who we have seen in the footage, it, it really does sort of put a very visceral, emotional bent to it. So, I mean, congratulations on the way you handled that. I thought it was absolutely compelling. And I'm looking forward to when you release this film and we'd love to put it up on our website or put up a, a trailer of it so that, because I think a lot of people should see this film. But one other thing I wanted to circle back to was you mentioned Sue Sisley and her study. And we actually had her on the show last year before she settled into the Scottsdale Research Institute talking about the need for education for medical personnel, you know, which is something that's really seriously lacking still in this country, even though it's getting better and you're starting to see continuing education credits for doctors who are studying the endocannabinoid system and, and uh, studying the therapeutic benefits of, of cannabis, which is a really good thing. But um, with her study, and it was very lucky that you were able to get her on an interview about this, but she's actually looking for more veterans to participate in this study. And uh, when you spoke to her, what, what stuck out for you in terms of what the possible outcome of the study could be? Well, I mean, I know what the outcome of the study is. We all know what the outcome of the study is, that, that cannabis is helpful for veterans with PTSD. What I found most interesting about her study was how very difficult it was for her to perform it and yeah. the many roadblocks along the way and the way that she actually was forced to become an advocate for it because she just wanted to get the information out there and do a scientific study. She, as she says in the film, she's not pro-cannabis. She's simply pro-research. And she was forced by all of these continuous uh, red tape and, and, and closed doors. And, and even the cannabis that she's using is such low quality because they can only get it from one source, which is the federal government. Okay. So it, it, was, it was really mind boggling for me. And again, like you said, that the fact that, uh, of how stringent they are in their screening process and how hard it is for them to get the veterans that they need to, that fit the criteria to do the study. So, you know, she's a, she's a trooper now for the cause. And it, what's really interesting to me is that she's a direct byproduct of the system that first employed her, which is the FDA and, and the DEA and the federal government. And, and their stonewalling of her study forced her to become who she is today. And I, I think that's a great thing. I look forward to the study data being released when that happens. But, you know, there's, from all this, the, all the guys that I talk to in, in an interview, it's it's without question that if you have the choice between taking a psychoactive pharmaceutical with no negative side effects and you have the option of utilizing, you know, whole plant cannabis with with minimal side effects, uh, which one you're going to choose and which one you're going to use, and 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 it's very clear for the veterans who who have tried that and who it's worked for them. Yeah. So in California, I mean, in your personal experience dealing with the VA out there, uh, have you run up against any brick walls when you talk about the benefits of cannabis for yourself? Absolutely. I mean, at this point, the VA uh, cannot and will not endorse nor suggest nor allow you to use cannabis for any 
ailment whatsoever in the state of California. There's there's new legislation going through that, you know, PTSD is going to be a qualifying condition. And that's fantastic. But, you know, at this point in time, the VA is not accepting cannabis as a as a medical thing and and when you when you tell them but it's 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 a joke at this point because you know when i'm talking to my counselor and they're like you know well you know don't do any crazy drugs or anything i'm like well i smoke pot and they're like honestly that's fine i can i can't say on the record that that's fine but it's fine and you know i mean i'm in the veterans uh, the veterinarian's office the other day with my dog and he's like have you guys heard about cbd and we're like yeah we use cbd and, and he's like oh, okay i'm not really legally or or professionally allowed to say it out loud but as long as you know about it and so that's where it is at this point is it's it's taboo to professionally recommend it but at the same time it's completely okay and everybody uses it and everybody knows it's okay and it's it's painful it's painful for us here in these states who are so widely accepted to it across the board from from grandma all the way down and we see these huge raids of people in our home states getting locked away for years for you know a couple ounces of of not even that good of cannabis um, and it's it's painful and it what's what's fun now for us is to be activists for that and so when we see those kind of posts come up from news stations in states where it's legal and they're like hey we look at all these drugs we took off the streets we have the social media power now to to comment on those posts and I've seen articles kind of come back the next day going, well, was it really worth it? With all these states going legal across the country, we now have to ask ourselves, spending all of these resources on the quote unquote war on drugs in our states, which deem it illegal, that we spent you know, $100,000 on this raid, was it worth it for $2,000 worth of cannabis that was being sold to veterans who needed to treat PTSD? I mean, so it's, it's becoming ridiculous at this point, in my opinion. Yeah, and, and that was one of the, the biggest issues in the film too. I mean, Jesse lost his job. Um, he he went through an expensive uh, court battle just to find that you know he was exonerated. There was there were really no charges left uh, against him, and yet it destroyed it destroyed whatever progress he was making. Absolutely, and it was it was felony drug charges for growing cannabis, and he, he was growing about five or six cannabis plants in Home Depot, five gallon buckets in a, in a closet in his house. They called it a marijuana growing operation. They called him, you know, a cannabis kingpin. They said that he was supplying, you know, most of Northern Indiana and it was laughable. It was, it was ridiculous. And he was using it for his own personal use. And then guess what happened once he got fired from his job and, and once he lost his house, he moved to the one place at that time where it was legal and where he would be, it, it would be acceptable. And that was California. And that's what all of us did. I mean, most of us in the film have moved to states. We're not from the states we live in. We've moved to these states because this is where we can get legal and free access to medical cannabis. And for me and my own road to recovery with PTSD, it wasn't until I had for the first time in my life, free and unregulated access to medical cannabis that I truly was able to make a positive spin in my life and start in a, in a real direction and make progressive movement forward to being a, a, po a positive member of society again. Yeah. And, and some of the drugs that are prescribed for post-traumatic stress absolutely have no long-term benefits in terms of dealing with the condition. And sometimes they exacerbate them. Exactly that. And, and I mean, if you also not only the ones that are prescribed post military, but if you look at the medications that were prescribed to us as soldiers during these initial invasions, and I want to speak specifically about our malaria me medica uh, medication called mefloquin. Uh, this is now a black box medication that has been pulled from the shelves and pulled from being served to United States service members. This is known to have psychoactive 
by, uh, byproducts that cause suicidal thoughts, aggression, acts of, uh, of outbursts, and, uh, and uh, symptoms related to PTSD. So it is my, under my research and from the guys that I've went to combat with and the drugs that we were given, I think that there's a huge uptick in these suicides because of the medication we were given while we were deployed. And those medications have now been pulled. So I'm guessing that there's going to be a steady decline in the amount of suicides as these new, as these new troops continue to come home. So it's, it, we got, we got slammed from every direction. We were fed, you know, chemical water that wasn't even clean. We were given bad medications for things that we didn't even need. We were given shots against, uh, against chemical weapons that were never even present. And then after the fact, we weren't transitioned properly. And then we were drugged up with opioids and barbiturates. I, I mean, if anybody's questioning why veterans have problems, let's just, Let's just look down the line at what's been put inside of their bodies. And, and I don't think we have to really go that far to understand it anymore. Yeah. So in terms of activism and, and encouraging people, military and non-military veterans and non-veterans uh, to get involved, what, what do you suggest people do, especially if they're living in states where uh, cannabis is not legal yet? Well, I, I mean, it's... It, it, the thing about treating veterans and PTSD is, is one, the veteran has to be willing. And that's the probably the hardest thing to overcome. And that's part of the reason that I made Mile Marker, because I wanted to present veteran after veteran after veteran who have these issues, each slightly different, but overall the same, and show veterans that they're not alone. And I think once veterans can feel that they're not out there struggling with these symptoms alone, and they can see in this movie that that there's other people who have dealt with these issues and they've come up with a solution and they're living a better life. I think that's the first step that, that many veterans need to take towards being progressive and becoming an activist. And I think only then once they deal with their own personal demons and they, they're able to put that on the shelf and, you know, start to put one foot in front of the other again, then they can start to focus on taking care of their brethren. And you're seeing that there's large groups on social media where veterans, you know, close knit together, stay in communication, buddy, check each other, help out. You know, there, one of my buddies, you know, he's really under financial hardship. There was a hole in his bathroom roof. Uh, there was rain coming into his shower. He didn't have any way to take care of it. A bunch of guys found out, you know, in a few days they managed to scrounge up the cash to buy the supplies, get a team of guys over there to fix his roof. And, and that's, and that's what it is. But the sad reality is, is that activism ends in outside at the end of the veteran family, we take care of our own and, and we're basically it because the VA is there, but it's a system that's completely over inundated with the amount of people that it's supposed to help. Plus their systems of out of date, plus it's rife with corruption and all these other problems. So at this point you have two options. You have your, you either fight on your own, which is tough and, and guys lose that fight or you reach out to your, your veteran family. And the best place to do that right now is, is through social media. Uh, and then once that happens, then they can grow. They can get that camaraderie back a little bit. And then I think they can find veteran organizations in their community, such as motorcycle gangs you know, or, or the VFW uh, or you know, disabled veterans of America and, and start to do things in those organizations. But it's important that whatever they do towards their activism, that they're part of a group and that that group appreciates them and that they're working together. Uh, and I think that's the perfect formula for somebody with PTSD to not only start to feel better, but thrive. And not alone is a really interesting way to, to phrase it because they aren't. I mean, there are so many 
who, who come home with the same issues. But I've often been curious, do you think it's difficult for someone to come to the realization or admit, for that matter, that that they are impacted by post-traumatic stress? Or are there people that, from what you've seen, are there people who who will put those feelings into a box and label them something else other than a condition that they fear might stigmatize them in some way? Absolutely. I mean, for me, for everybody, there's definitely, there's a period of time once you get out of the military where you, you know, depending on the level of trauma that you went through about how you deal with it and how much time it, it takes to process. And there, there's a huge community of people that don't want the PTSD stigma for one, cause they think it'll get their guns taken away. And so they're like, I don't want that because then they're going to come take my guns. And so, you know, that's veterans number one concern, but underneath that is their own personal health. And then they're like, I, I don't want anything from the VA. I'm fine. I'll figure it out. And so they'll start having a couple of beers every night, which turns into a couple of whiskeys, which turns into something else, which turns into a problem. Uh, and that's the way that that goes. And normally, as it explores in the film, PTSD is normally the initiating condition. But then something else is put on top of that, most notably addiction, uh, most commonly in myself and my battle buddies. And we we kind of build an onion outside of from there. And we, we go BTSD, then we cover it with addiction, then we cover it with anger, then we cover it with loneliness and despair. And the thing about being alone is you don't have to be by yourself to be alone. In PTSD, you can live in a house with 10 people and be absolutely alone. Um, because nobody understands what's going on in your head. And PTSD is such a, a weird thing to try to understand because it affects you emotionally over a long period of time. And it, if you don't address it properly and understand the triggers and the signals, it can just keep snowballing and, and snowballing and be covered with so many different things that that you're just this huge mess of nasty energy that nobody wants to deal with and nobody understands. Um, and, and, you know, I still, even though I've gone through six years of intensive therapy through multiple different studies, you know, I still get triggered and, and that's what it is. That's what it's called. When you have a PTSD related event, you get triggered. Um, and you know, let me explain it to you. You know, uh, I live in LA and LA is, as everybody knows, one of the worst cities in the world for traffic. And when I get stuck in traffic, I drive a, a Jeep Wrangler. And it's very similar to a Humvee. And I didn't realize this when I first moved out here. And so when I'm driving on the 405 and I get stuck in traffic inside of my Jeep, I feel I get triggered because I'm trained that that's a bad scenario where I'm getting stuck in traffic. I could be ambushed. I can't move. Uh, our mobility is being manipulated by a force that we can't control. And this is a bad situation and we need to get out of here quickly. And so I get very angry in these situations. I get angry at the other people on the road. I get angry at my car because it's not moving. I start yelling, hitting the horn you know, slapping the steering wheel, whatever it is. And I become this ball of a mess and I don't even understand it. If I have never gotten treatment for PTSD, all I know is that I don't deal with traffic well. And at first I didn't understand why. And I had, it took a while for me to get into therapy. And once I got into therapy, I started to understand some of the terminology and what was happening with my happening with my post-traumatic stress disorder, I was getting triggered. And in this situation, I was sitting in traffic and, and I couldn't move. And if you take that back to your military history and you're thinking to yourself, all right, what is it like when you're in the military and you get stuck in traffic? Well, normally you're in a bad combat situation where you could be ambushed. Somebody can shoot an RPG at you 
and you know you could there could be an ied on the side of the road and so you're trained to get out of that situation as fast as possible and when you're hindered from getting out of that situation you become aggravated because your your fight or flight response is kicking in and it's telling you hey there's danger you, you're not you can't see it but you're trained that there's danger in this situation so let's get out of here and if you can't move you get really worked up and you get really pissed off and so you'll scream at people you'll honk the horn or or you'll you'll bang on the steering wheel and to somebody who's on looking even if they're in the vehicle with you who's your family they're like yo what's wrong with you right now you're crazy you need to get this under control and for somebody with PTSD who hasn't gotten treatment they don't understand that in this situation what's happening is they're just being triggered and they need to understand that trigger and then they need to do a safety assessment and realize that okay we can take this trigger and we can take it down if we just you know cohesively think through the situation. Is there an IED on the side of the road? No, there isn't. Is there a chance that someone's going to pop up out of that truck with an RPG and blow up my, my Jeep? No, that's not, it's not going to happen. I'm in Los Angeles. I would hear about that if that was going down. And so then slowly after you start to think it through, you start to, your heart rate starts to, de to decrease and your brain starts to think about it logically. And that flight or fight response starts to just kind of dissipate. And that is what dealing P with PTSD is like. However, it doesn't go that quickly. Um, sometimes you know, I was I was issued a book to read for work, which was called um, Extreme Ownership, about how Navy SEALs lead and win in combat. And it was something my CMO wanted me to read. And so I, you know, I he wanted our whole department to read it. And it included chapters about combat in Iraq and how military SEALs use that to train leadership in corporate environments. And for me, it was very difficult to read that book. But I wanted to do it because I wanted to fit in. I wanted to be able to transition successfully into the corporate world as this is one of my first, you know, real professional adult jobs. And I didn't want it to be an issue, but it still was an issue because as I was reading those chapters and each chapter is introduced with a story of combat, I, it triggered me page after page after page. Uh, and but I, I wanted to get through the book, so I read it. But that whole experience still lasts with me to this day. Um, and because I'm thinking about ways of arguing the information and I, I realize why I was so negative about it, and my own interpretation of these combat scenarios. So it's it's a very uh, shifting and changing kind of disorder that's hard to identify and can move and maneuver from subject to subject, depending on the trauma that they went with. Yeah, one of the one of the things I thought was very touching was that you did interview someone from the Vietnam War and my father who I just recently lost uh, was a career Navy pilot and he had multiple tours into Vietnam flying off of aircraft carriers. He had been shot down. He had been ejected from a multi-ton jet off the edge of an aircraft carrier and throughout his life after re-entering life without war he was still in the military and still had to carry out all of his duties as a pilot for many years after the Vietnam War but there wasn't really a label to PTSD and it did impact the family and there's you know I think it was really difficult for people to understand what was going on inside of the mind of someone who had watched villages being bombed with napalm or the terrible experiences that they had during that war not only that but returning from the war not the way that they did in World War II where they returned heroes they were counseled and they have support to reintegrate into society 
you know, after Vietnam, there was this anti-war sentiment that was prevalent in society. And so they came back with not only the experiences of trauma during war, but then the trauma of being rejected by society when they came back. And I mean, these days, at least, they still just sort of drop you off, as you mentioned in the film, and they don't really give you the counseling that you need when you return into civilian life to to try to adapt uh, to that new way of life. But at least you have something to call it. I mean, from your perspective, do you think that that is something that still needs more work? Or The DOD is the front line for the transition between military and civilian life. The VA kind of picks up where the DOD left off. And what's really important in that transitional time is the acceptability of the soldier of whether he's going to accept that transitional, whether it be counseling or classes, and if he's in the mental place to be able to do that. And a lot of us were not and will not be. And soldiers in general uh, are not ready to handle that. And it is, as you identified, a, a, a significant difference a break, if, if you would, even between World War II and Vietnam. And that really was the introduction of the aircraft and the ability to transport soldiers quickly in and to and from the battlefield. And, you know, in World War II, the guys came back on ships. They spent a lot of time together decompressing as a unit about what they had just gone through. Whereas in Vietnam and the wars today, you can find yourself in the war zone in the morning for breakfast and be home with your family for dinner. And that's a very, very jarring transition to try to make. Especially when you come home from a long 12-month, 15-month, 18-month deployment into these combat zones where you have to be on guard 100% of the time, you know, and then come back to the, to the civilian world, it is extremely difficult to come away from that experience and transition quickly into a civilian life without issue. It takes years, at least from what I've seen, for me and my battle buddies to be able to mentally wrap our head around what we dealt with. And, and, you know, PTSD isn't even about one traumatic event, and especially with military soldiers, it's about a constant feed of high energy situations where you are constantly being trained and in muscle memoried into being prepared for some of the worst situations, life and death situations all the time. So there's definitely more that we can do from a therapeutic side. There's definitely more we can do on both the DOD side and the VA side, but it really ultimately comes down to the soldier and their willingness to be accept, you know, to accept treatment. Do you think it would help if they had mandatory counseling for all? There definitely is. Sitting? There's definitely mandatory counseling within the military. When you come home now, I mean, it wasn't originally, uh, you know, when you come home from a tour now, there is mandatory PTSD counseling there. You know, you start a progression overseas now of training and, and transitioning back. The problem is, is when you transition out of a war zone, the most, uh, I guess, catastrophic time for a unit is in those last couple of weeks because people drop their guard. They, uh, you know, they start to focus on going home. They're thinking about what their what car they're going to buy or their girlfriend that either still is there or isn't still there and what they're going to do about that. And their, and their mind quickly shifts off of the combat situation in which they find themselves. So again, they often don't tell soldiers that they're going home until the very last minute um, and, and with good cause, but that has a very devastating effect mentally on those soldiers. So there's there's no good answers. War is is a byproduct of human nature that is the problem and is the essence of PTSD. And not until we cure ourselves of our desire for violence will we be able to rid ourselves of things that are a byproduct of that violence. Beautifully said. 
So if you had several senators and Congress people in your living room right now, what would you tell them? Well, that's a great question, actually. I've never been introduced to that scenario. I think the first thing that I would definitely talk about is the positive effects of medical cannabis for treatment of soldiers. And I would show them a short clip of the film, uh, you know, that highlights exactly that. I would want them to understand from medical professionals that the repeated benefits that they've seen over case after case after case of the benefits of medical cannabis for them. I would then want to focus on the budget of where the money is being spent. You know, from the Vietnam guys that I that I talked to all the way down, you know, we all know that there's systematic issues with the VA system. And we feel like if if it was actually maybe run by a few more veterans that that uh, we could probably do a better job of policing ourselves than a bunch of people um, that are just f running free with our, you know, the budget that's for us. So we'd like to see some more accountability there. And we'd like to see some more veterans represented within the VA structure, especially at the executive and director level. So uh, there's a couple things that I would definitely be interested in talking to them about, as well as, uh, you know, exchanging their congressional benefits uh, and turning their health plans into veteran health plans, because I feel like the congressional health plan is it's a pretty dope deal. Uh, we'd like to have that as veterans. We serve the country, too, and in a lot more dangerous situations. So maybe for a few years, we could just swap out, you know, and see how everybody likes each other's and, and see if any changes pop up after that. <laughs> yeah, I mean, certainly they can't make an accurate judgment of what the medical benefits are like for veterans unless they've experienced them themselves. Right, because I've had a bad tooth in my mouth for seven years and I can't get it taken out of my head. The VA absolutely refuses to do any dental work on me even though I'm 70% disabled. Because I'm not 100% disabled, they won't work on my teeth. And that doesn't matter that they gave me chemically irrated water in Iraq and six out of the seven water depots that we were getting water from were contaminated. That doesn't matter because it wasn't in my dental records because I didn't have time to jot that down between RPG attacks. Right. <laughs> oh my goodness. It, that I hate to laugh, but that... It's, know, it is laughable. I mean, what, what else can you do at this point besides laugh? Yeah, yeah. It's it's really unfortunate. And we we were so inspired um, last year on Veterans Day. My partner, our publisher, Star Simmons, uh, called me. We were both devastated by the news that yet another veteran had taken his own life in the parking lot of the VA here in Phoenix. And as you mentioned in the film as well, the, the VA in Phoenix was notorious for some of the problems that were prevalent nationwide in the VA. And uh, it, it was just more than we could bear to think that the problem still hasn't been fixed after you know being in the public news cycles multiple times over the last several years. So we did the first veterans rally on Veterans Day and piggybacked on the veterans parade that was happening right outside of the VA with quite a few veterans and people who support the cause. And as we were doing this, people were coming up to us who were in the parade, veterans of all different colors were coming up to us and shaking our hands and saying, thank you for advocating for this cause. And what we're doing with the website now, with the, dedicating a page to the stories of veterans who are finding healing through cannabis therapy is we're trying to get that message out as best we can because I think that the more people in civilian life hear and know and understand the plight of the veterans as they return from fighting for our freedom, they can begin to understand how, an imp how important it is for them to have the freedom to choose the medicine that's going to make them well. Because, I mean, nobody wants to see 
a veteran suffer after sacrificing so much mm -hmm. to give service to our country? I mean, I could go on about this forever. And it is. I mean, it's amazing the cause as far as cannabis for veterans. You know, once I got into it, you know, once I really hit the story, it was the story. It was, it, it, you know, at first I was going to cover it a little bit and then I was going to cover it a little bit more. And then once you get out there and you actually start talking to these vets, there's only, it's the only conversation that's really going on that's, that's really noteworthy. I mean, the VA is starting to do some great things. They've come out, you know, and I, I interviewed Dr. Paula Schnur, who's the executive director of the National PTSD Center. And she is basically one of the co-authors of these new studies that the VA is rolling out for cognitive reprocessing and uh, uh, the other one I don't remember the title of, which is, you know, a new way of treating PTSD, which is showing dramatic results. And that's great. But the problem is, is that getting veterans into the VA system, as we know, is very difficult and keeping them there even more difficult. So if we can start them on the outside of the VA where they're used to, where they're the most comfortable with medicines with you know that they have easier access to that are more beneficial then i think that can be a, a great first step to get them in because it really just takes it just ha we have to take down that wall a little bit and yeah. and it, cannabis is a great medicine to help take down that wall as we explore with some of the veterans in the film they discuss how vitamin or you know uh i guess that's not the word how, how much they were opposed to trying it and then what happened when they tried it for the first time and the and the positive effects that they saw uh, you know, it's 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 hard to ignore that, and it's hard to ignore those those stories, as well as the the leaders and the politicians of those states, especially in Pennsylvania and Denver, of these politicians who have seen one of them, who she was a family practitioner for twenty years, was a state senator. When they approved marijuana, she jokingly thought, "Oh, we just approved marijuana so that people could get high." But then, you know, as she went through the system and became the politician and met hundreds of vets time and time again saying the same story about how helpful it was for them as a medicine it's uh it's again you, you can't ignore it so it's uh it's it's exciting that that i'm helping to spread that story because for me cannabis has been a, an important part of my life for a very long time and you know i had a very rocky start to my life because of cannabis because i lived in new york and i was arrested at 16 for a two dime bags of swag and that caused enormous problems in my family and my community, which essentially led to me joining the military because I was given no other options because I was labeled a stoner at that point. And so for me to be able to tell this story to my family now, and especially my mother and have her watch this movie, and then afterwards roll a joint next to her and not feel for the first time like I'm doing something wrong, that I'm actually doing something that helps me, and knowing that she now understands that because of the story that she just viewed, it was it was emotional and important for me, and I and I think that that can translate to other soldiers with similar issues as well. Yeah, I think so. Well, congratulations to you for a job well done, and goes without saying, thank you for your service to our country as well, and and your con yeah. continued service by telling your story, and it is so important. And I'm I'm really eager to see what happens when the film is released. Tell us where people will be able to find it. At this current juncture, we are still finalizing those details, but you can definitely look for it pretty much everywhere right around Memorial Day. Um, we're coming out mainly on digital outlets, so you can find it on your iTunes and your Google Play and your Amazon on all those different outlets right around Memorial Day, probably about a week before that. I want to say May 22nd uh, with 22 days of presale starting May 1st so at a discounted rate, so that I know veterans don't have a lot of money. But again, I'm not the distributor, and we're still solidifying those details. We're a little bit early, so but it's, it's coming right up real soon. We're going to release the trailer 
there in, in just a few weeks. I'm excited for everybody to see that. And then, um, yeah, I'm excited to see what this what this film can do if it can go out there and help people. And if we can just if we can help a few guys, then then awesome. Um, that's what it was made for. Uh, excellent. Well, thank you. Um, yeah, definitely. And I, real quick, I'll say that if you want to follow us on Facebook, definitely do that. We got our Facebook out there, uh, Mile Marker Film, and you can check out the website, which has character profiles on all the guys that we talk to that's milemarkerfilm.com follow us on instagram we appreciate your support shoot us a message shoot me a message i'd love to talk to you if you have a story you know that's similar i'm i'm excited to hear from you and i i hope uh, to talk to somebody soon about this great so once again i would like to personally thank my guest Corey Rowe for sharing his insights and knowledge with us today. If you'd like to learn more about Mile Marker and other work he's doing, please visit us online at CannabisReporter.com and click podcast to find today's episode. I will post his bio along with information and a link to the film eventually once it's released. We have a lot of others to thank. First, I would like to express our gratitude for our radio sponsors, Alpine Miracle, Healthterra, and compassionate certification centers. We certainly couldn't be doing this without you. I would also like to thank Eric Goodall, the composer of our beautiful theme song, Evergreen, and our producers and engineers here at DigiLabs for making us shine. And last but not least, thank you to all of you for listening. I'm your host, Snowden Bishop, inviting you to join me again next week, same time, same place, for another episode of the Cannabis Reporter Radio Show. And until we meet again, be safe, stay informed, share what you've learned, and make it a great day. Join us at the World Medical Cannabis Conference and Expo at the Pittsburgh David L. Lawrence Convention Center, April 12th through the 14th, and meet investors, networkers, new products, and professional athletes. Ex-NHL star Philadelphia Flyers Riley Cote, Super Bowl champion Marvin Washington, and more. Register today for early bird pricing at cccregister.com or by calling 888-316-9085. Again, that's cccregister.com com or 888-316-9085 presented by compassionate certification centers now that doctors and patients have discovered the many benefits of hemp derived cbd alpine miracles nano emulsion cbd formula is one of the most bioavailable on the market today it's 100 thc free so you can order it online anywhere in the u.s order yours today at alpinemiracle.com scientists are just beginning to understand its essential role in maintaining optimal health get yours today use the code reporter and receive 10 percent off don't wait get it now at alpinemiracle.com you're busy running around from work to kids to evening events. Healthcare shouldn't be adding to your daily running around. Simplify your healthcare with Helterra for only $15 per month per individual or $18 per month per family with up to nine kids. By the way, you can eliminate doctor office visits with 24/7 access to doctors via phone, video, or the mobile app. Not only do you get prescriptions filled over the phone, but save up to 85% on those prescriptions. This is a supplemental plan and not insurance. Healthcare made easy. Helterra.com.